Mana 3 Media. Welcome to First Listen. I'm Derek. And I'm Justin. First Listen is a series of conversations where we hear from different individuals of what it's been like for them to grow up black in America. Meet Dr. Dyrus George. Dyrus George, uh, I live here in Clarksville and I work in the education industry. My experience growing up in Clarksville, uh, particularly as a black male in education, has probably mirrors what I would argue many people have experienced in education. My experience in education uh, was one loneliness. Um, I was a gifted and talented kid. I had the pleasure and opportunity to be in, in honors classes and gifted classes most of my life. Uh, but as a result of that, I oftentimes was the only, definitely the only black boy in a lot of my classes, but also at the same time was also, um, as I went through high school, middle school, elementary, I never had a black male as a teacher, ever. Uh, it wasn't until I got to college that I actually had a black male as a professor. I was a sophomore in college who had that experience. Um, I had two teachers of color, um, K-12, um, one in elementary, one in high school. Um, and that was it. Uh, I will say it's still impactful just to see someone who, who mirrored my background, but my experience in education has been engulfed in whiteness. Um, it's stark when you don't hold space with people who oftentimes don't look like you. I was the only person who graduated in the top of my class that was a black male. Um, I, I, I realized that that there was kind of a criminalization of black boys in my experience. And so once you kind of fell into that pool of like uh, devalue, it's hard to climb out of that. You, you weren't gonna get, I mean, the way I realized how, how oftentimes it works is teachers and counselors control who gain access to certain classes. And if you weren't a student that was valued academically and seen as a whole person in the education space, you didn't get the recommendations to honors classes, dual enrollment classes, AP classes. I feel like I got those opportunities because I was smart. Um, I was smart and I was valued as being smart. When I looked around, I, even though I knew genius and, and, and creativity and smart of other people that I knew personally, because it wasn't valued by, by teachers, they wanted those classes with me. And as a teacher, I seen that too as well. I didn't understand that. I didn't understand that to gain access to dual enrollment, AP, honors, you had to be recommended by a teacher. And so when I would, as a teacher, I would look at, you know, when kids would come and we were doing recommendations, I could see which teachers recommended which kids for what. And there were times where I would look at kids and like, why aren't you recommending for honors or dual enrollment English or, or higher math? And a lot of times these were black and brown kids, these were black and brown kids that I knew that I had taught that had a level of ability that should allow them access to those opportunities. But because we had a system that was based on merit and that merit was honored by a tenure of how long you've been identified as a smart person. So like if you had honors classes or you were an honors kid or gifted in middle school that followed you to high school. I taught high school, by the way. So it was like, you know, if, if you are you on that tenure or if you are you on that track and you had that tenure, you, you it's almost like you automatically gained access to all of those opportunities. And very, 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 very seldom did you see black and brown kids who were identified as gifted in town. Um, and so professionally, it's the same experience, too, as well. I taught here in Clarksville. Uh, I taught at a school where 
Um, I started off, there was another uh, black male teacher initially, but he ended up retiring early due to um, an injury he sustained. And so I was the only black male teacher in the school building that I taught in for over half of those years that I was there. Um, and that opened my eyes to a lot of things. Every part of my career as I've navigated education from the classroom, working now in the, in the nonprofit space, very similar, always the only black male. And then oftentimes, one of the few people of color in the space. I now lead an education nonprofit uh, that, that's working to try to uh, address some of that, that racial inequity uh, and, and really champion support this idea that people of color uh, are valued and also needed. They are, they are, when you don't have it, it's a detriment to the experience that kids get. And so now we're trying to change that narrative that I oftentimes live my entire life in this space. That way other folks coming through the profession won't have the same story that I've had professionally. I used to work at McDonald's in high school, uh, junior, senior year. Um, and my senior year, we're leaving the football game and I'm, I'm, I'm one of my friends, we were headed to a, um, uh, a team party. It was a team party that was gonna take place uh, at the JC building uh, after the football game. And um, some of my friends that worked with me at McDonald's, some of them didn't have a ride home. So they like, hey man, can you give us a ride home? We were, the general direction that we were going in for the team party, we would have had to pass their house up anyway. I was like, yeah, man, let's go ahead and do it. The thing I didn't think about at the time was like, I had a intermediate driver's license. So with an intermediate driver's license, um, even though I was 18, I hadn't changed my license over yet. Um, I had done the paperwork, but I hadn't gotten the actual license to have a full license. And so you can only have one person driving in the car with you if you have an intermediate driver license. So I had took these guys home we're leaving the school. They live less than a mile from the school and we got pulled over by the cops. I pulled off of the road into the neighborhood and literally pulled over in front of the house that we were dropping folks off at. License and registration. And I just, I don't know any better. I, I was always just taught to be respectful. Yes, sir. No, sir. Dot your I's, cross your T's, keep your hands on 10 and 2. You know, if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have anything to be, you have anything to worry about. I always told them, if you're not doing anything wrong, you have anything to worry about. So I'm thinking, I haven't done anything wrong. We were pulled over because we were quote unquote swerving. I was quote unquote swerving, I was driving. Um, get the license, immediately they see that it's an intermediary license, even though I was 18. And I'm explaining to him, I've, I've applied for the, the regular license haven't gotten it yet, but I had too many people in the car. I'm also explaining that, hey, we're, where we're going is right here. Like we're literally right here where we're supposed to be at. And then it was the questions of like, what do you got in the car? Where are you coming from? Anybody drinking, anybody smoking? Um, I had to get out the car onto the sidewalk. They did a breathalyzer test. They did the, uh, the lights, follow the flashlight back and forth. I had to stand on one leg and recite the alphabet backwards from J through A. Then switch legs and do it again. I started from J and I'm like J, I, H. And when I got to G, I said J again. And it was just like, you said J again, like what? Like almost attack mode, right? And you know, I stayed calm, everything was cool. I didn't realize that 
until years later when I got older, that wasn't standard. Like that wasn't, you know, like when you actually found nothing, like the car was searched, everything, no one had, no one been smoking, no drinking, no nothing. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we were out there for like 30, 40 minutes going through all of these motions. And as I reflect older now, looking back at that, I equated that to racism. Um, five black boys in the car get pulled over. Everybody's honest, open. There's nothing. Hands. Like, I, I don't know how else to equate that um, unless it was just someone didn't know what they would. I would like to think people knew what they were doing, but I would argue that there, there may have just been a better way to navigate that besides all of the humiliation. You know, from from 18 to probably about 21, I probably had a, a, a couple, like at least four instances where I've had to get out the car, lock hands on my knees, search car, because I didn't realize I could tell somebody no, and no one found anything. Um, so I just kind of kept going through this cycle of like, just keep being respectful and yes sir and no sir and do what you're told. So when I graduated college, I uh, worked at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Um, and while working at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, like the, 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 the branch I worked at, we cover most, most of North Clarksville, but we also would go into like Dover, which is more of a rural community um, that's like a little bit south of Clarksville. Right. I was rushing to get out there because someone was calling and saying, hey, I need a vehicle by this time because I got to be at this place at this time. And so I'm rushing from Clarksville to Dover to drop off a vehicle, to deliver a vehicle. Now, this was a road where they were they were widening the road at the time. So for a long time, there was like one way up and one way down on this road. They were in the process of making two lanes going down, two lanes coming up. But because there was road construction, the speed limit just changed. It'd be like 55 and 35 and 25 and 55. And I got pulled over for speeding on the way back. Um, working at Enterprise, if you got so many tickets, you could lose your job. Right. And so I'm trying to be respectful, not only because that's how I was raised, but like, I don't really want to get a ticket. This would have been my first one. I ended up getting a ticket. But the way in which like I did everything to show that I'm respectful and I value and I, you know, just trying to be upstanding was reciprocated with like just condescending, talk down, boy, several times. And I'm just like, at that point in time, I, I and I was a father then. At this point in time, like I'm, I'm I have I had twin boys, they're young twin boys, and I'm thinking to myself, I was like, I'm, I'm doing everything right here, and I'm still being devalued and dehumanized. And um, I remember I took my my license back, and he's like, "You get out of here, boy. Make sure you slow down when you're coming through these parts." And I was just like, "Wow." So that means like when I'm in the car. I'm going to dot my eyes across my teeth to the best of my ability because I don't want to interact with, with cops unless I'm going to a checkpoint and I have to. Like, I don't want any interaction with any cops. Um, and so from that day forth, like I went almost 10 years without having without getting pulled over and having like any tickets or anything like that, because I was bound and determined when I get in the vehicle, I'm doing everything. Seatbelt on, you know, mirrors adjust everything to the point where I don't look like I'm doing something wrong and even have to interact with law enforcement. So I, I think my own personal experience was absolutely the motivation to, to, to work with kids. I started working with kids early on. So like in high school, I was big brothers, big sisters, you know, college, I was doing some academies. I was working with a lot of times black and brown boys, uh, summer camps, 
Uh, I ran Capitally for a long time here in the community. Uh, so I've always had an affinity of working with boys. And a lot of times the boys, like, there was multi, like, my background's very multifaceted and multi-pronged. And a lot of the things I experienced, a lot of kids were experiencing. Like we, you know, when I was coming up, we experienced a, a stint of homelessness. You know, I gone through uh, seeing witnessing divorce at a very young age with my parents. Um, you know, just just different things that I know that that play a role in upbringing, especially like when societally things are already stacked against you. Like you're, you're trying hard to just be not like the, the ideal of like being successful and all that stuff doesn't trump just being like when all these other barriers are stacked against you, poverty, food, divorce, safety, all of these things. And so I remember I, I changed careers to become a teacher, took a huge pay cut. Like I was working in business and had been working in sales. And I realized I was like, you know what? One, I'll be helping kids that I know that reflected my background. And two, selfishly, my kids were getting ready to start school themselves and I had already gotten to a point where I realized like, man, the time go like, and education in my eyesight was going to give me an opportunity to be on my kids schedule. So like when they're out of school, I'm out of school on the weekends. I'm out there out the summer breaks. I'm out there out. So it's like I get to work with kids a and then also get more time back with my family. B to me, it was worth it. When I got in the education system, I started to realize that the challenges that I experienced externally as a community member, as an adult, were perpetuated in the education system. We were preparing kids to exit the education system to come into community and be subjected to everything that I was experiencing because they weren't prepared to be able on paths that were going to set them apart and above what they were already kind of people predestined for them where they were going to land. And so it's almost an acceptance of like, I'm not surprised that I'm getting in trouble with the law. I'm not surprised that I may be living in poverty. I'm not surprised that I'm, you know, battling communities and things around me that are saturated in, in drugs and violence and et cetera, because systemic oppression and racism was perpetuated in education. But also what I realized too is that um, a lot of it was because students weren't getting the opportunity to see anything other than Right. For many students that I taught, I taught at a very affluent school where less than 30 percent of the population were black students. So seven, almost 70 percent of the population were white students. Most of the students, I don't know how many times I taught, I taught this school for five years. I don't know how many times I heard, man, you're the first black teacher I ever had. And I knew then in that moment that like their experience, even as white students, was just like my experience as a black student. Not being able to, me not being able to see myself and them not being able to see anything other than themselves. And the value that was added was that, oh, I could be in this class with a black professional and learn and grow and, and, and be able to see the world through a lens that I'm oftentimes limited to. We're missing the opportunity. We're missing the opportunity when we don't allow people to see either perspectives and viewpoints and lifestyles outside of their own, but also not valuing education, especially for sometimes the least served uh, from people from marginalized communities without allowing them to see themselves in professionals on a daily basis. Man, it's, it's important that, that people are able to see mirrors. Students are able to see mirrors, reflections of themselves, because a lot of times the reflection that, they, that they're looking at oftentimes don't uh, exceed the expirations and aspirations that they have or 
they don't exceed the aspiration, aspiration that they could obtain because they've been so limited in what they've been what they've been presented. You know, there's just so much research behind it too, like like the achievement and absenteeism goes down, graduation rates go high, people have higher access to gifted and talented courses. Once I realized that teachers had the ability to to grant that access with the recommendation, I fought hard to get my own dual enrollment class. I'm like, I'm, I'm gonna get my own class and like recommend kids that I know have ability for the opportunity. And so um, I ended up getting an opportunity to teach dual enrollment financial planning with UT Martin, University of Tennessee at Martin. And so me being able to recommend kids who I knew intimately, even if they weren't A students, you know, a lot of times because the merit system says that you have to be an A student, being an A student is like the, almost like the precursor to even consideration for the opportunity. Well, a lot of the kids that I would teach, especially kids that were black or brown, you know, a lot of them weren't like all A students. They may have been low A or high B, mid B, but they had ability. And for me, research already has said kids who gain access to higher education opportunity, early post-secondary opportunities, so dual enrollment or AP um, courses were more prone to, to seek college. To be able to advocate for kids who weren't getting the opportunity meant that I had to kind of reclaim some of that position and power to be able to recommend them for it. And I think that also... Uh, once I realized that, that also like pushed me to kind of do the work I'm doing now. That that I did around positioning and empowering. There's a lot of decisions that are made in education that are made on behalf of people who look like me, but people who look like me aren't key stakeholders in conversations to shift and push the levers that are going to change systemically the way we in which in which students and and educators of color access and also navigate in the profession. We need to not only see teachers that mirror the students, but they also need to see educators in leadership roles that mirror uh, the backgrounds of the students that we're serving. Um, and so I think because I was, I, you know, I had an idea where I was yearning for the next thing. And then I've also shown the ability to like work with kids and sometimes the most the most vulnerable kids. Um, I start getting pushed in the back to pursue administration. You should be an assistant principal. You should be an assistant principal. I began to do all the work to get my license. I did everything. I took the extra classes and everything. The only thing I didn't do was take the test. I never took the administrative uh, licensure test because I started realizing that when I seen black and brown kids written up, a lot of times they were put out of school. It was either in school suspension or out of school suspension. Um, and I, it, it didn't gel well with me that I would be, it didn't gel well with me that I would be someone having to do that. And so I started looking for external opportunities. I was like, I, I, I want to be identified as a leader in the education space, but how can I do that and not, and, but how can I do that without being limited to being just a principal or as going into like building administration? So I actually came across, like there was a letter that came out from the State Department and it always was talking about opportunities. And it was, one of the areas of opportunity were all these different fellowships. These were teacher leadership opportunities for folks to learn about education policy and advocacy, and then to try to create some type of uh, advocacy change, to advocate, be a change agent. And it caught my eye. I was like, oh, I could be a leader, but still be in front of kids as a teacher. And so these fellowships gave that opportunity. And so I didn't know anything about fellowships at the time, and the fellowship that I participated in was the same thing. They were, don't get me wrong, these were phenomenal opportunities. I learned a lot. But uh, one of the fellowships, I was the only male person of color selected out of almost 50 people across the state. 50 people, I was the only male person. I kind of drew the conclusion like, this is education. 
And the crazy thing about the ed education and these fellowships, like I was able to meet all the key stakeholders, the governor. Uh, I was able to be in the, the governor's teacher cabinet meetings. I was able to meet key stakeholders when we were working on our ESSA plan and all these different things that were going on. I was able to, to, to be a part of these conversations with key stakeholders across the state. And oftentimes I was always the only person of color in the room. And so the vantage point of which these policies uh, were created were often absent of the people who they, they were designed to serve. It was so challenging to be in those spaces because at those moments, I began to reflect on my earlier years when I had been pulled over by cops. And knowing that like, I'm commuting from Clarksville to Nashville every day for this fellowship opportunity in the summer, 2016. And at any given point, they could ha I could get pulled over and this could happen. And like, I'm thinking like that. And then not, th not only to mention like, you know, I have uh, black sons that will be black men at some point. I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about family members and relatives. And I'm thinking like, you deserve the grace of a moment to just be like, man, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm, I'm burnt out. I'm drained. And on top of that, I don't know if the work that I'm doing is going to shift this narrative for folks coming behind me. Uh, that's a real thing. I, 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 I remember a conversation with somebody and they just start crying. It's like, I'm fearful for my child who can drive now to go to the store for me to run errands because of what was going on at the time uh, in 2006. What's always been going on, but it's now been sensationalized because we're catching it on video. It's fair to say that the, the way in which black and brown people have to go through this world, uh, it needs to be explicitly known that whether it's personal or professionally, it is vastly different from how white people can navigate this world. A lot of times when white people grow up in poverty or they've grown up with, uh, uh, you know, in the, in, the, uh, in communities of despair, oftentimes they're not judged as if they were. When we're talking about academic achievement, when we're talking about the representation of people of color in the profession, when we're talking about the disparity gaps that people being suspended and at, uh, the graduation rates and ACT scores, when we intersect race in there, it is crystal clear. Students of color, particularly black and brown students, are always on the lower end of the spectrum as opposed to white students. And if we know that that's been the case for as, as, as long as I know, and as long as we've been uh, accumulating data, then that right there tells you why some people don't have the luxury of being able to walk in spaces and think that they're gonna be afforded the opportunities and the access when there's, when there's years in, uh, of data that shows that that's not the case. Neutrality is a choice. People, people say, oh, I'm going to be neutral. Being neutral is also still being complicit. Like if you're in the education space, you don't have the opportunity. You, you just can't, you can't afford to be neutral. We can't afford to be neutral. We need to be working towards educational justice. We need to lance anti-racism, any facet of education that we can, or that's if you're working as a professional, you're working with kids, or if you are a supporter of education in any capacity as a, as a community stakeholder or a parent or guardian, we need to be explicit around the idea that if we don't address some of these challenges that people are going to confront externally in the community, in the school, where a lot of times it's perpetuated, we are being complicit in sometimes the hurt, harm, danger. And in some capacities, as we can see for, for some black and brown folks, the deaths of them when they exit the, uh, the education uh, space into the, the larger community. So we just don't have the time to be, to say I'm neutral. If, 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 if your position is neutrality, you need to be in another profession. We, we just, it's, 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 I hate to say this, but to make it, make it really crystal clear, like it's, it's, it's literally life or death for some folks, period.
I can't have my kids operating in the education ecosystem knowing that if something was to go down and they are they are literally, as, as Dr. Bettina Love would say, being spirit murdered and you chosen to do nothing. I can't have you in the space with my kids affecting their trajectory and their access to educational justice and to live and be because you made a decision to be inactive. There has to be a motivation. Like I want to be a change agent. I don't know how, I don't know where to start. I think there you begin to learn, position yourself, humbly submit and position yourself to learn from people who are doing the work. You got to listen. Uh, I think that kind of goes back. I think this is very, um, uh, so fitting that it's first listen. Um, you know, I think also listening allows you to understand the conversations that you haven't been a part of. Regardless of whether you're an ally, you're a person of color from a disenfranchised community, I think first listening and understanding and learning the context of the conversation that you've been missing out on, uh, understanding that intimately, truly, uh, and really understanding like why, what's right and what's wrong. Uh, and also valuing the lived experiences of people who are involved in those stories and then using that as an as an opportunity to create your entry point into action. A lot of the experience that I had in education, especially on the back end of the fellowships, uh, led me to launch my own nonprofit while I was teaching called the Tennessee Educators of Color Alliance, um, TECA for short. TECA is an organization where we are unapologetically working to advance racial equity in education. We're supporting educators of color across the state so that they can remain in the profession, but then also using their voices, elevating their voices and key stakeholder engagement so we can make some systemic change in the policy arena. So some of the things that we've done uh, as a direct reflection of, 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 of me being in those spaces and learning is we launched a fellowship that was explicitly for educators of color, piloting it here in Middle Tennessee to give them an opportunity that many people had not had uh, previously before. Um, we're, also in the we're also in the process of now of, of establishing a educated diversity council statewide. Uh, we have membership. Membership currently right now is accessible to anybody, both educators of color, people of color, community stakeholders, and also allies. They can go to our website, www.tneca.org. Uh, feel free to donate. Uh, um, obviously, the, 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 the monetary value that you provide is going to its good use. It funds our fellowship. It funds our uh, yearly conference that we're doing. It also allows us to provide more leadership opportunities for folks who don't have access to them across the state. I would really challenge people to really look at the historical context supported by data of where they operate at. Look for as far back as you can and compare it to now. Do some longitudinal assessments of a landscape analysis of who's been underserved. Can you tell? Can you literally tell? Does data show who's been disciplined more? Does data show who's been achieving more? Does data show who's been given opportunities for educational advancement as it relates to like honors, dual enrollment, AP? I think a lot of times when you have these conversations, anecdotally people can say like, I don't see it. Like we're, we're growing, like things are moving forward. Insert data in the conversation. Absenteeism, graduation rates, ACT scores, SAT scores, disaggregate the data by race and just see, just look. I assure you, if you have longitudinal data over a period of time and a, a population of folks are always at the bottom, are always going to be less than, doesn't that not perpetuate the story of what this country was built on for 400 years 
of humiliation and uh, limiting folks to be viewed as less than, we got we made a few strides, but there's a lot of work to be done. You can't erase the dehumanization of a population of people that have experienced something over an arc of 400 plus years by the good work that you've done in a couple. It just doesn't work like that. Um, and so I will always argue for folks to like, you know, if I can't give you my story and you feel something from it, like, you know what, I, I feel it's something there. Like, I believe that. Go do your research and look at the data, have data support. Show me the data that supports your claim that we're moving this arc along. And I'm not talking about, you know, just for a little bit. If you even can say, yes, I, we are being successful, don't limit your success then just to the um, the smaller population of the community that you serve. How can you expand that the way it now touches more people? Because it's gonna take a, a collective effort uh, uh, in a mass reproductive way to really move the needle how we need to move it to really see some of these disparities and some of these gaps closing. Dr. Tyrese George, um, he, he, I love dropped, him. yeah, he, he dropped <laughs> a lot of uh, jewels, a lot of nuggets. Um, for me, uh, Dr. George really highlighted, uh, the fact or the importance of making sure that as a black or brown individual, that you're making sure that you have a seat at the table. Um, and if you, you don't have a seat at the table, even eventually making a seat of your own and then inviting others so that you are able to bring forth the change that you want to see. So I, I just, it was impactful, uh, you know, the things that. that he shared. Him talking about um, people making decisions uh, for uh, students of color, um, um, you know, different schools, uh, and not having anybody that looks like them making those decisions, mm -hmm. um, I, not anything that I've ever considered or thought of, and how backwards that is mm -hmm. you know people that don't have that experience are making decisions for people in that experience how can they be educated how can they know how to make the right choices if mm -hmm. they're not from that experience yeah yeah um that was very eye-opening to me and then also too just the idea of education um not being represented in, in leadership or teachers mm -hmm. not seeing yourself represented mm -hmm. um his first um teacher was uh, a male african-american teacher was in college yeah um i mean growing up white <laughs> that's not something that i ever even considered mm -hmm. because i just see myself reflected back in all of my teachers and leaders and stuff right and um it doesn't occur to me that what that would be like for somebody who doesn't have that for themselves yeah. You know, it, for for him as an African-American teacher going that far through his uh, educational experience and not having someone represented that look looks like him, he probably couldn't even see himself in that position or yeah. being a teacher. Or for him, it was probably never even a thought that he could be a teacher because he never saw that. So I think it's it's very important that um, as an individual color, uh, black and brown individual, that you do see people uh, in places and in positions professionally uh, that look like you. Yeah. Right. I love too the part of, about his story, the intentionality that he had when he got into education and um, two or three years into it, you know, start, started hearing things about like, hey, you should, you know, look look at administration, mm -hmm. maybe being a vice principal and him 
sort of realizing and understanding that like if I'm in this if I'm in this role, I'm going to be a part mm-hmm. of the problem. Maybe not necessarily as much as part of the solution as far as like black and brown kids right. um, for behavioral issues or whatever. And so to remove himself from that and get into the nonprofit mm-hmm. side of things, I think was just a a, a, a bold move on his part um, to be able to get into areas of leadership where he can actually make changes mm-hmm. and uh, affect the way that um, policies and procedures are made. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that it was, that's a brilliant, uh, brilliant move on his part. Yeah. Yeah. And Dr. Diaries George is, he's making a very much, a lot of waves in that space and in that area. So I appreciate the work that he, that he's been doing. Yeah. I, I loved talking to him. I loved hearing your guys' conversation and, um, uh, the, just <laughs> soundbite after soundbite from him, yeah. um, you know, as far as, uh, uh, you know, looking at the data, of mm-hmm. the disparities of, um, you know, black and brown kids in the education space. Yeah. Um, was very eye opening. Yeah. Yeah. That challenge that he threw down at the, at the end, you know, I challenge you to, to, to look at that data. Right. And, and, and say, and, and not make some changes to, to what you're doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So good. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to uh, First Listen, and uh, we'll see you next time. First Listen is hosted and produced by Derek and Justin and is part of the Mana 3 Media Network. We'd love for you to click subscribe and tell a friend about us. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. For more information, check out our show notes, and we hope you join us for our next episode dropping very soon.